0: Let me again, uh, before I get started uh, this morning and we dive in uh, to the book of Ruth, uh, let me just reiterate something that Jerry just talked about on Easter Sunday about baptism. You know, I have become uh, really convinced and probably convicted about this over the last few years that for so many of us as followers of Jesus, you know, the first act of obedience when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our first act of obedience, in fact, we see it all the way through the New Testament. We're going to go through the book of Acts here sometime in the near future. And you'll see that whenever somebody followed, decided to follow Jesus, they became a follower. Immediately, they identified with him in baptism. And I think one of the things that in modern evangelical churches that we have really started to get lax on is this idea of baptism. And we kind of just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. In fact, when I grew up as a kid, we had to go through the baptism classes and make sure we understood all this stuff. And, you know, I think back and I, I think, when I look in the New Testament and I go, they really didn't know that much. <laughs> they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that they wanted to follow him, that, that, he, that he was their savior. They embraced that. That's really what you need to know, Right? And identifying with, with Jesus in baptism, as a follower of Jesus, that's our first act of obedience. And I want to challenge you, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized publicly, to say, hey, want everybody to know, not ashamed of it, I'm a follower of Jesus, there will be no better time than Easter Sunday morning. I'm telling you, it'll be great, right? So if you're here and you're an adult... And you know, you just kind of had never been baptized, you've never been obedient in that way. Hey, come on, take some risk, right? Jump out a little bit. Uh, I'm sure the weather's going to be beautiful that morning, all right? And uh, what a great opportunity for you to be baptized on Easter Sunday morning, all right? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth, I'm going to tell you at the outset, Ruth is one of my favorite books in the Bible, And um, somebody said to me before the first service when I was talking about the book of Ruth, I said, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. They say, you say that a lot about different places where you're preaching and teaching. And uh, I probably do, but I I really, really mean this, all right? Ruth is like one of my all-time favorite books. In fact, back in 2010, we did a six-week series on the book of Ruth. And I'm going to give all that to you this morning in the brief time that we have uh, together. So uh, buckle up. Here's the truth about Ruth, that even though it's only four chapters in length, the book of Ruth has been recognized even by those who don't believe in the reliability of Scripture. It's been recognized as a literary masterpiece. In fact, some have said that what Venus is to statues and the Mona Lisa is to paintings, that that's what Ruth is to literature. That's pretty big, right? So if you've never really uh, looked at the, at the book of Ruth, um, you have missed the Mona Lisa, right? It's going to be a great opportunity for you this morning uh, to do that. Uh, a thousand years before the story of Ruth, and if you've been with us over the last several months, uh, just real quickly, a thousand years before we come to the events that are going to take pl- place in the book of Ruth, Abraham has been called by God to establish uh, a nation, For the purpose of one day bringing a Savior to mankind. And in this small book, these four chapters of Ruth, we have the beginning of that family within the nation of Israel into which the Savior of the world will eventually be born. And the events that take place in the book of Ruth happened under uh, the time in Israel when they were governed by judges. This is a very, very sad time in the nation of Israel. In the past couple weeks, in fact, we've been talking about the life and ministry of Joshua, whose God-given task was to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And in uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 31, we read this statement, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Wow, what a great thing to be said about a leader of a group of people that all the days that he was their leader... Generally speaking, the people served the Lord. But there were those that were in the nation of Israel who did not want to be under any kind of authority. And so when Joshua leaves the scene, we enter into what we might call the uh, days of freedom. In Judges uh, chapter 2, Joshua dies, and it's the beginning of the downfall of the nation of Israel. In chapter 2, verse 10 it says all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. In fact Judges chapter 21 verse 21 verse 25 says in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds eerily familiar to uh, the days in which you and I live in today. And what a sad portion of scripture Stop for a moment and just think about this. There's a generation now that has grown up that does not know the Lord. With all the incredible spiritual heritage, there's a generation now that says, God who? I want to tell you this morning that we are but one generation from that happening in our families as well. That it really relies on you, moms and dads, to point the next generation... To who God is and to what he's done and what it means to have a relationship with him. It is not just simply your responsibility to bring them to church and let me or somebody like me tell them about Jesus or our Sunday school workers. It is your responsibility because we are one generation away from our kids going, God who? With all the incredible things that had happened in the nation of Israel, think with me the bondage that they were under in Egypt. And then God brings a deliverer by the name of Moses and he leads them out of that, bond, that bondage of slavery where they were working in the hot sun, making, making bricks out of straw and mud. And then he brings them to the front of the Red Sea and they, and they panic and God does something great and he parts the waters uh, of the Red Sea. Later on, he'll part the waters of, of the Jordan. All of the victories over their enemies, water coming from rocks. God making sure they were fed by by sending quail and by sending manna from heaven. Every need that they had 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 been met, even though they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And yet there arises a generation who says, God who? A very, very sad commentary on the nation of Israel. The time of the judges is going to last about 400 years when everybody's basically doing their own thing. What Israel does is they reject God, and then he withdraws his hand of blessing, and he would judge them. Then they would cry out to him in repentance, and uh, amazingly, he was incredibly long-suffering with them, as he is with us today, and he would send them a leader. The cycle would look something like this. Disobey, judgment, repentance, deliverance. Kind of sounds familiar to some of you parents, doesn't it? <laughs> Disobedience, judgment, repentance, deliverance. Disobedience, it's like your day, right? I just described it. The cycle is repeated over and over and over again. In fact, some who have kind of analyzed the Old Testament the nation of Israel speculate that as best they can tell, it happens at least 14 times that cycle happens. They disobey, they're judged, they repent. God delivers them and then before too long they forget and they disobey again and the whole cycle repeats itself. And so when the story of Ruth begins in chapter 1 there's a famine in the land, it's most likely due to God's acting in judgment on his sinning people. And because of this family there because of this famine there is a man by the name of Elimelech and he along with his wife Naomi and their two sons they Uh, mom and dad anyway, lack confidence in their God to provide for their physical needs. And so they make a decision because of their lack of faith, they move to Moab and their new home in Moab was not a good place. If you are a Bible student, you know that the Moabites were the descendants of Lot. We read about them in Genesis chapter 19. And so they're distantly related to the Jews. Some of you also remember the story of Lot, that when Lot and his wife and kids lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and before it was going to be destroyed, they were warned to leave the city, but they were told not to look back under any circumstances. And you remember, Lot's wife looked back, and she turns into a pillar of salt. What you may not know about that story is that Lot's two daughters now were sure that there was no future for them. That there would be no man to marry them and carry on the family name. And so in faithless irresponsibility, what do they do? They uh, get their father drunk, and they have an incestuous relationship with him in a cave while he's drunk. As a result of that incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters, the son of the oldest daughter became the founder of um, of the uh My notes are messed up here. You don't want me to say something that's wrong. Uh, They became the founder of the Moabites. And the son of the younger daughter um, was the beginning of the Ammonites. And these nations were constantly at war with the nation of Israel, and they caused incredible destruction. In fact, David, when we find uh, Psalm 60, verse 8, David actually calls Moab, he refers to Moab as his wash bowl. Uh, the term used here in the original language means garbage heap. We might also substitute it with the uh, word uh, trash can or dumpster. Uh, those of you that live in Apex, you're really proud of that, right? Because it, it is what? It is the peak of what? It's the peak of good living. Imagine if on your water tower it said Apex, trash can. You know? You wouldn't be the, like the number one small city to live in in America, right? Apex. Garbage can, dumpster. That's what Moab was. That's the way that David described it. These people were idolaters. They worshiped the god uh, Chemosh. And the god Chemosh required of them that they actually sacrifice their little children. And they would do that. This is the place where Elimelech decides to move his family. He decides it would be better to live in this heathen country than to trust the omnipotent hand of God to feed his family. I think that's ironic. This decision will have devastating consequences for he and his family. Moms and dads, let me just in passing this morning, because this could be a whole sermon, but let me just in passing this morning tell you this, that the decisions that you make have consequences for your children. Uh, Dads, let me be a little more specific to you. Uh, Scripture over and over again talks about uh, the sins of one generation being visited on other generations. I hope that you men are convinced and understand that the way that you live your life or do not live your life, it matters. And it matters not just for you, but it matters for your wife and for your kids and potentially for generations to come. Never buy into the idea that our society tells you that your job really is not that important that all you need to do is simply provide a paycheck and simply be there and to provide all the necessities of life, your responsibility as a spiritual leader can never, can never, and should never be minimized. And so those decisions that they make will have devastating consequences, not only on them, but for their kids as well. Elimelech and Naomi, they have two sons. Now, what you need to understand is that in Bible times, very different from most of us today, But in Bible times, when they would name their kids, they would name their kids based on some physical trait, maybe when they saw them as they were born. You remember when we studied Esau? He was named Esau, why? Because he was hairy, had lots of hair all over uh, his body. Elimelech and Naomi did something very similar. They had one son, his name was Chilion. And as you hear that word, you think, well, that's not really a common uh, name for kids today. But you know what Chilion means? It means puny. Can you imagine a dad? He's there at the birth of his son. He's anticipated the birth of his firstborn, and the baby comes out, and he goes, "Honey, I think we ought to name him puny." I mean, mm. and then that sticks with him, right? So the kid grows up to be six foot six, two hundred and fifty pounds. Still, I'm Chilion, puny. That's me. If that's not bad enough, they have another son. His name is Malon. doesn't seem too bad at the surface, right? Until you realize that it means sickly. Can you imagine Elimelech going to a father's son retreat, a banquet, something of that sort? All the men are there with their sons. And they say, hey, Dad, stand up, introduce your kids. And he stands up and he goes, this is my son, puny, and this is my son, sickly. Really proud of these two boys, right? They have two sons. Here's what's really sad, and I'm summarizing a lot of the story here, but Elimelech dies, and not too long after that, uh, Puny and Sickly die as well. It's interesting to note that the very thing that they ran to Moab to avoid, which was death, starvation, was exactly what happened to them. So often, what we do and we think we're doing in order to avoid something calamitous in our lives, or we're doing something that we think ultimately will produce a great result. How many of us have been disobedient to what we know to be truth because we're convinced at that moment in our rebellion that somehow God doesn't know best, we'll do what we think is best, and then there are devastating consequences, and we get exactly what we were trying to avoid definitely true here. Side note, trusting God is always better than trusting yourself. It's always better. So here's Naomi with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, three widows now. Naomi decides that since the famine is now over, she's going to return to Bethlehem to be with her people, and Ruth and Orpah begin the journey with her, but she encourages them to return home. Now I want to stop for just a moment and let you know about some customs in Israel. There was a custom in Israel that when a married man died without any children to carry on his family name and to receive his inheritance, it was his unmarried brother, unmarried brother's responsibility to marry the widow so that according to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 6, the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is known as the leveret marriage. Comes from a Latin word for brother in law, which is lever, L E V I R. And so basically, Ruth or Naomi says to the girls, I have nothing to offer you. I have no more sons, puny and sickly, they've died. I have no more sons, and I don't even have a husband. And even if I did have a husband, and even if I were to conceive tonight, it would be a long time before that boy would be old enough to marry you and carry on the family name. Don't come with me to Bethlehem. Go back to Moab and try to have a good life. It'll certainly be better than mine is going to be. And so what's interesting is that when confronted with the same circumstances, Orpah decides to go ahead and go back to Moab. But Ruth makes the decision to go with Naomi to Bethlehem. What's further interesting to note is that we will never hear from Orpah again in Scripture. Her name will never be mentioned again. And Naomi, quite a different story. Here's something that I want you to remember if you're taking notes. This would be a good thing to write down to remember later. It's not our circumstances that determine our destiny or our story. Make sure you get the first part of that. It's not our circumstances that determine our destiny. It's our decisions that we make while in those circumstances. It's very interesting that when you hear stories, in fact, right now in our our presidential campaign, um, some very sad days, I think, that we're watching in that whole particular realm. But one of the things that I have been fascinated with is to hear the story of these candidates. And you hear the story about so many of them and having grown up in in very uh, dire circumstances And then their their story now that they're running to be the president of the United States of America. You think about all the kids that would have had the same circumstances but now find themselves in a very different position. I would submit to you that it is because of their decisions that they make in those circumstances, not the circumstances. And that's true for all of us that are here today. No matter what your circumstances are, it is not your circumstances that are going to determine your story. It is the decisions that you make while in those circumstances that is ultimately going to determine your destiny. Now, we might look at it strange that um, a daughter-in-law would actually want to live with her mother-in-law. It's interesting to me that in our culture, we laugh often about the sometimes tense relationship uh, that we have with our uh, in-laws. It, it reminds me of a, <clears throat> of a story that I heard uh, several years ago. I don't think it's probably true, but maybe it could be. A man and his wife and uh, his mother-in-law, they went on a vacation to the Holy Land, and while they were there, uh, the mother-in-law actually passed away. And the funeral director uh, told them, you can have her shipped home to the States to be buried, and that'll be about $5,000, or we can bury her here in the Holy Land for $750. Uh, The man thought about it, and he told the funeral director he would just have her shipped home. And the funeral director said uh, to the man, why would you spend $5,000 to ship your mother-in-law's body back to the States when She has the opportunity to be buried right here in the Holy Land, and you'll only spend $750. And The man replied to the funeral director, a man died here 2,000 years ago. He was buried here, and three days later, he rose from the dead. (laughs) He said, I just can't take that chance. (laughs) Now, hopefully, you don't have tension in your relationships with your in-laws like that. I don't with mine at all. I want you to know, Esther Milheim, that if we were in the Holy Land together and you died, we'd bring you back here. We would do that. No matter what it cost. we would would do that. So Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. And look with me quickly in chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi. Again, let me just detour just real quick, okay? It's very interesting that the women aren't even sure that this is Naomi. I, I would speculate to you that the 10 years that she's been in Moab, having lost a husband, having lost two sons, while knowing that she went to Moab because she and her husband did not trust in the sovereign hand of God, I would submit to you, that that had, had played quite the, the toll, it had quite the toll on her physical appearance. I'm going to talk in a couple of weeks about the life of David and about what sin does to us. But I think it had quite the consequence physically for Naomi. She said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's interesting that in this text, Naomi's theology really is correct. It's actually really good. She believes that God exists, that he is sovereign, that he's allowed these things to happen in her life. But the despite uh, the fact that she and her husband made wrong decisions in their family with unimaginable consequences, she still can't bring herself to say, what I did, what my husband did was wrong, and as a result, life has been horrible, but thanks be to God that I'm still alive. She, She doesn't say that. She basically says, look what God's done to me. I would suggest to you that when you and I find ourselves in the circumstances of life, as a result of the decisions that we have made, the best thing to do would not be to blame God, but to simply look back at the decisions, at the choices we've made, and not continue to repeat them, but to make new decisions so that we end up in a different situation in the future. Here's something I want you to remember. God may be invisible but that doesn't mean that he's not in touch and at work. One of the cool things about being in a church and doing ministry with a group of people over a period of years, a lot of pastors never get to experience it because they just pop all over the place, but one of the, one of the really cool things about being a pastor and getting to do what, what some of us get to do here at Northwest is to, uh, is to see people's circumstances in life. And to get kind of a front row seat to see what God does when things are broken and things seem desperate and things seem hopeless. And to be able to remind you that God may be invisible today to you. You may not see his hand, but that does not mean that he is not at work. If I could stop right now and I could ask several of you just to stand up spontaneously, you could give testimony to that fact, could you not? That those days where God seemed invisible to you, when you cried out to him and you said, do you even know I exist? Do you care what's going on in my life? God was there. And God was working all things for your good and for his glory. In chapter 2, Ruth begins to work in the field of a wealthy man named Boaz. This is where the story gets really, really good. This is where we should have been last week on Valentine's Day. She starts to work in the field of this wealthy man named Boaz, who she doesn't know at the time, but it's a close relative of Naomi's. Possibly the brother of her husband Elimelech, probably maybe a nephew, but certainly part of their family. And Um, When they return, you have to understand, they're penniless. They don't have any money. And so Naomi says to Ruth, the younger woman, why don't you go out and why don't you pick up grain in the fields? This provision had been made in the Old Testament law. We read about it in Leviticus 19, in order that the poor might be fed. Farmers were instructed not to glean the grain out of the corner of their fields, but that everything that was in the corners and everything that was left as a result of the gleaning process of the harvest process would be available for the poor. And so uh, Ruth just happens to end up in the field of the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem named Boaz. Chapter 2, verse 5, Boaz notices Ruth and the love story begins. Now Ruth must have been a beautiful woman. You say, how do you know that? Well, because I'm a man and I know men. He didn't know anything about her character. He didn't know that she was a woman of integrity, that at that particular moment that she was caring for her mother-in-law, that she had left this horrible place. All he knew was what he saw. I think he saw her as a beautiful woman. And uh, he asked one of his servants who this was, and one of his men tells him that she's a young Moabite woman who had come back with Naomi and Boaz makes it clear to Ruth that she doesn't need to go anywhere else to look for food. (laughs) I think it's pretty funny. As you're reading through the story, you can just imagine Boaz coming up to Ruth and saying, it's so good to have you in the field today. And uh, just to let you know, there's really no need for you to go to any other field. There'll always be food available for you here in the fields of Boaz. That is my name. Let me introduce myself. I am Boaz. Boaz. In fact, in verse 15 of chapter 2, he tells, his, he tells those that are working in his fields that they should leave a little bit extra. <laughs> you don't really need to get everything, because there's this beautiful woman that's coming behind you, and she's taking care of herself, and, and so just leave a little extra. He discovers also in the process that she's been uh, very kind and helpful to her mother-in-law, and when she returns home uh, to Naomi, Naomi asks her uh, Where she had gathered grain, and she tells Naomi that she's worked in the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi proceeds to tell her that this is a man who is part of their family. When the two widows had come to Bethlehem, their plan was that Ruth could take care of Naomi and they could somehow eke out an existence the best way that they could. And all of a sudden, when Naomi hears that name, Boaz, she recognizes the gracious hand of God at work in her life and in Ruth's life. She knows that she deserves nothing based on the choices and the decisions that she and her husband Elimelech have made in the past, but she sees the merciful, provisional hand of God in action. I think it's interesting here when you think about the sovereignty of God to look at this particular event and say, of all the fields that Ruth could have been in, how does she end up in the field of Boaz? a close family member. This is incredibly significant and important. Naomi then explains uh, the law of the kinsman redeemer, which we see in Leviticus chapter 25. It was not just the kindness and love of Boaz for Ruth that gave Naomi, Naomi confidence for He could decide that he really didn't like her and really wasn't interested in Ruth. But it was the principle of redemption that God had written into his word that gave her the assurance that Boaz was indeed going to rescue them. You see, as the near relative, Boaz could redeem the family property that Elimelech had mortgaged when he and Naomi had taken off for Moab. Naomi wasn't wealthy enough to be able to do that, to be able to pay off the debt and redeem redeem it, but Boaz could buy it back and could keep it in the family. However, something else was involved because not only did you get the land, but with that also the kinsman redeemer had to marry her, had to marry the wife, the widow, and bring up any children bearing the name of the deceased. They would then inherit the property and the family name, and, and that would go on. And so in chapter 3, Ruth meets Boaz uh, on the threshing floor. I'm summarizing a lot, but she goes to the threshing floor in chapter 3. If you're listening along with me, you can read there too. She's, she's on the threshing floor in the evening, and she, let's just say she lets him know that she's interested in becoming his wife. Notice in chapter 3 verse 9, Ruth said to him, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. I'm sure that's happened to many of you married women when your husband you came to your husband and you said, spread your wing over me and redeem me, right? Anybody have that? No, nobody's had that happen to them. You ever read anything in the Bible, especially you kids, you read it and you go, that's just downright weird. Like I would never tell a guy to spread his wing over me. That's odd, right? Well, here's what's going on here. Ruth was asking Boaz to cover her with his garment. This was a symbolic way of requesting Boaz's protection as her husband. And even even today, in a Jewish wedding, a Jewish man will throw the end of his prayer shawl as part of the ceremony over his bride to demonstrate that he has taken her under his protection. It was an encouragement for Boaz to pursue the possibility of marriage. Evidently, Ruth assumed that he was the closest in line, or she hoped that he was the closest in line, the closest relative of her husband, Malon, and that he would be able to marry her if he so desired to. And so she was inviting him to be her lever in Leveret marriage. She was, in effect, asking Boaz to marry her. So chapter 3, verse 10, Boaz lets her know quickly that he indeed is interesting, interested. He's interesting too, but he is interested in her. And he says in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, you've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. See, Boaz is older than Ruth, and he's thinking she could have gone after the younger men, but she doesn't do that. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do all that you ask, for all my fellow talents Fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer that's nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he'll redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you. Lie down until morning. In fact, he says, I really like you, and if I can, I want to marry you. However, I need to tell you that there's somebody that's closer, that's a closer relative than I am, and he has the first option. Here's something I want you just to kind of write down there as you're taking notes. He chooses character over emotion. And that's a huge lesson for us uh, to learn. Uh, This week, and probably many times this past week, it's certainly going to be true for you middle school and high school students. There are going to be opportunities for you to make a decision about what seems easy and what seems like like really, the, the, not, the easy, not necessarily the easiest thing to do, but the best thing to do because you really want to do something and you're going to make decisions this week, you're going to be put in situations where doing the right thing is going to be difficult. And by the way, that's not just true for middle school and high school kids, it's true for us as adults as well. It's going to be times this week when we're going to be put in situations where we have to choose to do the right thing rather than simply choosing what would be easy at the moment or what we want to do at the moment. Verse 14 says that she lays at his feet until morning. Now, I'm not really too sure how pleasant that arrangement uh, was. Uh, Pretty safe to say that uh, nothing questionable happened that evening. Uh, with her at his smelly feet. But in chapter 4, we read that Boaz goes to the city gate, and I speculate that he probably woke up very early in the morning and made sure he was right there at the gate. He, This is where business was transacted, and he, he went there to meet for, with the nearest relative, to wait for that nearest relative to come in. In verse 2, the man comes by, and Boaz asks to talk with him. Verse 3 says, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And the guy said, I will redeem it. Now, if, if, if you're kind of Kind of like sappy love stories. It's at this particular moment that you just go, "Oh no!" Right here, here's here's Boaz, and he's met Ruth. He's made sure there's a little grain left for her every day, and she's picking up grain, and he's really attracted to her. I mean, he never thought he would end up with a young, beautiful woman like her. She comes to the threshing floor. She asks him to spread his wing over her. And he says, I'd love to spread my wing over you. But there is someone that's closer than I. And I must go to him and ask him. He's thinking in the back of his mind, right? This guy's not going to do it. There's no way. I got this. And so he confidently, you can, just, you can just hear it, he confidently asked him the question, if you'll redeem it, then redeem it. If not, I will, because I'm the next closest. And the guy goes, I'll redeem it. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I played for a, a clip for you of, of the movie Gladiator. I love Gladiator. Probably my favorite movie. But I'm a man of extremes. So I have Gladiator over here, and, and I... I The man card is, I'm throwing it out when I tell you this, I I get that, all right, but I'm very confident in who I am, doesn't bother me. The flip side here for me, Sleepless in Seattle. I went home, yes, uh, last Sunday afternoon, Sleepless in Seattle, it's on, Valentine's Day, Diana comes, sits down, we watch Sleepless in Seattle. If you've seen the movie, movie, and kids, if you haven't, Netflix this afternoon, all right, Saddest part of the whole movie, the top of the Empire State Building. Meg Ryan finally gets there. She's going to meet, sleepless in Seattle, yet he and a little boy have already left. Are you with me? And she's standing there on top of the Empire State Building, looking out over the great city of New York. Sees the little boy's backpack, wonders, you know, somebody left their backpack. It's a desperate, desperate situation. That's where we are, here with Boaz. It's the modern equivalent. (laughs) And So Boaz, verse 5, lets the relative know the whole story. He says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, just so you know, you're also going to get a wife. The widow of the dead. In order to perpetuate, in order to carry on the name of the dead in his inheritance, Boaz is probably thinking he's glad he's glad Ruth isn't there because Ruth's a beautiful woman, right? She's a young, beautiful woman, and this guy might see her and go, "That's even better." Loved the land, do I get both at the same time? Ruth's not there. It's just the men conducting business at the city gate. Look at verse six. Then the redeemer said. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. (laughs) I love this. Some have speculated that the man didn't want to marry a Moabite woman. I told you how evil the Moabites were, the Ammonites were, as descendants of Lot. Maybe he was concerned that any son that he would have with Ruth would not inherit, uh, not only inherit Malon's property, but would also uh, inherit all of his. Maybe he simply couldn't afford the land and a wife. That's quite possible. Whatever the situation, he says, no thank you, and he tells Boaz to redeem the land for himself. Now, in the ancient world, uh, there was uh, very limited literacy and very few public records, and so what they would do to seal a contract is they would trade sandals, their leather sandals, which if I had sandals on, they would have my my footprint that was uh, embedded into that leather sandal. The other party would have their sandals, and so what they would do is they would exchange sandals, and that's the transaction that takes uh, place here. Boaz hands this next of kin his sandal, and uh, the other man hands him a sandal, and Boaz makes it known that in front of all of these witnesses here at the city gate, I plan to redeem, to pay off the debt of Malon's estate, of his land, And I intend for Ruth to be my wife. So Boaz marries Ruth. And not too long after that, they have a son, and they name that son Obed. And remember I told you about how significant it is, uh, it was in ancient times, uh, to give the child a name which would somehow symbolize who that child was, something about them. You know what Obed means? It means worshiper. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 4, it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, I love this part, is more to you than seven sons, and she's given birth to him. If you're Bible students, you know this, that Obed would have a son eventually named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David, who would be indeed one of the, if not the greatest king of Israel, who would be in the line of the Savior of the world. So here's Naomi, that despite her decisions that she had made, She ends up being the great grandmother to King David. And if you were to look in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, where we read the genealogy of Jesus, you would see in verse 5 the name Ruth. And you'd ask yourself the question how did a cursed Moabite woman get into the line of the Messiah? If you've been with us over the last few months, it's no surprise to you because the answer is God provided for her a Redeemer. Boaz is a picture of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This short story represents so vividly what happens when we come into a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Emptiness is replaced with a sense of purpose. Because you see, we are... We are hopeless, desperate people without Jesus. We simply exist without Jesus. Ultimately, life has no meaning, no purpose. There is no future without Jesus. You see the similarities? For Ruth, for Naomi, they were in hopeless, helpless situations. And then a Redeemer steps in. And pays a price that they couldn't possibly pay on their own. And Boaz takes Ruth as his bride. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture of what happens with us when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? We have a sin debt that we can't possibly pay on our own that sin has separated us from God the relationship that we were created to have and because of that we are empty we are hopeless we are helpless life has no meaning it might have meaning at particular moments in time but ultimately you will find when you lay your head on your pillow at night and you think about all the things that you have the relationships that you have all of that put together it will be utterly meaningless in the end When you recognize that you have a debt that you can't possibly pay on your own, but for Jesus. And so he buys us out of the curse of the slave market of sin, out of our destruction, out of our desperation. And scripture says he makes us alive. As I close, I want to read to you another one of my favorite passages of scripture. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 I love when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he describes this process of what happens to people like you and to people like me who are so desperate. There are some of you here this morning, and, and you, have, you have religion. Maybe for you, this is part of the process for you, you come to church, you feel kind of good about yourself, and you're going to go out now, and you're going to live for yourself for the next seven days, and seven days from now, you'll come back in, and you'll get just a little dose of what you think is religion. You have religion, but you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes what we're like before Christ, and what happens when we place our trust in Christ alone as our Savior. Not in our good works, not in, the, not in any deeds that we do. He says, we were once, chapter 2, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that does now work in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You wonder why we have the situation that we have in our world today. Why there are wars and rumors of wars. Why there are evil groups that would love nothing more than to kill those that name the name of Jesus Christ. Why there are famines, why there are storms, why there's uh, death around every corner, that's because of sin. We're a desperate people. Uh, Verse 4 is the two-word phrase that has become pretty important to us here at Northwest. We talk about this a lot. Paul wrote, but God. You see, you and I have to get to the point in our lives where we recognize that we have a problem without God. It's not, again, just a religious problem. You just come back into religion and in, into the church. and you know, it's, it's we have a problem in that we don't have the relationship we were created to have, and it's produced desperation. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved by faith. And that not of your own doing. It's the gift of God and it's not by works. So that no one can boast about it. That's what God's done. And and this is why we want you to walk through the grand narrative of Scripture with us. The story of Ruth points us to the time when in our desperation... A Savior will be born, and He will redeem us. He will pay a debt that He did not owe to pay a debt that we owe that we couldn't possibly pay on our own. And He will receive us as His bride when we place our trust in Him alone as our Savior. And that is awesome, great news. To be in a world like you and I live in today, where I don't know who's going to become the president, And I care, by the way. I mean, I'm a political junkie. I've watched more debates than I've watched in my whole life in the last few months. I care. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't care. Because I know the one that's got it all in his hand is the one that redeemed me, that bought me out of the slave market of sin that set my feet on solid ground and has established my going and can do that for every single one of us. So I don't worry about tomorrow. I don't worry about tomorrow because I know who has tomorrow in his hands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the redemption that's possible because of your son's shed blood on a cross to pay a debt that he didn't owe for us that we couldn't possibly pay on our own. I want to say to you before I close if you're here this morning and you've never placed your trust in Christ alone as your Savior today would be a great day to do that. It would be a sad thing is if you you spent Sunday after Sunday after Sunday here at Northwest hearing the pure gospel preached and taught, yet you died without Jesus because you put confidence in yourself or in religion as opposed to Jesus. If you're here today and you've crossed that line of faith, you have a relationship with Jesus, but you're in tumultuous times in your life right now, much like Ruth and Naomi found themselves. I want you to recognize that while God may be invisible at this moment, he is at work. He's got a purpose and a plan for your life. And If you find yourself in either one of those circumstances or any others, I would love to have the opportunity to pray with you as we close here in just a moment. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word, which has the ability to pierce right through to our souls and do the work that needs to be done like a skilled surgeon. That's why you gave us the the word. And now I pray that your word through the Holy Spirit will do a work in hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name.